This is Backstory. I'm Brian Bellow. President Obama travels to Cuba next week, the first sitting American president to do so in nearly 90 years. And it builds on the decision I made more than a year ago to begin a new chapter in our relationship with the people of Cuba. Many previous chapters in America's relationship with Cuba have been turbulent, to put it mildly. There was the Cuban Missile Crisis in October 1962, when President Kennedy learned that the Soviets had installed nuclear missiles in Cuba. Khrushchev says, would you like them? And Fidel says, missiles? Nuclear missiles? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'll take them. Before that, there were freelance efforts by Americans to invade and annex Cuba in the mid-19th century. They had hopes of creating another slave state. A history of U.S.-Cuban relations today on Backstory. Major funding for Backstory is provided by the Shia Khan Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory with the American History Guys. Welcome to the show. I'm Brian Bellow, and I'm here with my buddy, Ed Ayers. Hey, Brian. And... My friend Peter Onuf's with us. Hey, Brian. President Obama's historic trip to Cuba is part of a larger effort to normalize relations between the two countries after more than 50 years of Cold War hostility. To understand just how significant this policy shift is, it's worth revisiting one of the most terrifying events in the entire Cold War. Good evening, my fellow citizens. This government, as promised has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. This is President John F. Kennedy addressing the nation on October 22, 1962, the eighth day of the Cuban Missile Crisis. A series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. For the first time, Americans were learning about something that Kennedy found out just a few days earlier, that the Soviets had installed long-range nuclear missiles in Cuba. And for Kennedy... This is the scariest speech any president ever gave, without exception. This is Jim Blight, a professor at the Balsillie School of International Affairs in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. He's spent the last few decades studying the crisis, and... He describes for us the tension in the room that day. Kennedy comes in when he delivers the speech. He sits down in front of the cameras. And this is 50 years ago, so these cameras are like, you know, the size of a studio apartment. He sits down behind the mic and he has his papers. There's no teleprompters in those days. So you had to be quite adept at reading and looking away from what you're reading at the same time. So he's got this pile of papers in front of him. And what he does, he takes the papers and he begins shuffling them like a deck of cards. He begins twitching a little bit. You can see, if you look carefully, I'm dwelling on details here, because uh, Kennedy was, is often thought to be the sort of perfect, almost like a mannequin president. I mean, he's so beautiful and his family is so beautiful and everything is wonderful. His hair is messed up. He's, he's, he's somewhat disheveled and he's really, really nervous making this speech. And why would he be nervous? I mean, what Kennedy is saying is that if one of these missiles is launched and hits anywhere in the Western Hemisphere, he says a full retaliatory response will be forthcoming. 
It shall be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba against any nation in the Western Hemisphere as an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States, requiring a full retaliatory response upon the Soviet Union. A full retaliatory response would have blown up the world. Period. That was the only strategy he had to work with in those days. A full retaliatory response destroys the Soviet Union, destroys communist China, and destroys the East Bloc, and about a day later, everybody else dies. Fortunately for everyone, the Cuban Missile Crisis ended with the Soviets agreeing to remove the Cuban missiles in exchange for Americans doing the same with their missiles in Turkey. For the general public huddled around their television sets, the drama lasted 13 days. But that is not the crisis. Turns out, like so many aspects of U.S.-Cuban relations, the beginning of this story goes back a lot further in time. Today on our show, Cuba, 90 miles to the south, but always looming overhead. We're going to take a look at some of the most important moments in the history of U.S.-Cuban relations and, for lack of a better phrase, blow them up. What we're after is the story behind the story. In this case, how a country about the size of Pennsylvania has had such an outsized presence in U.S. history. So if the Cuban Missile Crisis didn't begin with the spy plane photos that were snapped on October 15th, when did it start? Jim Blight says that from the Cuban perspective, tensions started building a year and a half earlier with the Bay of Pigs invasion of 1961. The Bay of Pigs was the CIA's ill-fated mission to train Cuban exiles to invade Cuba and overthrow Castro. Castro's forces got advance word of the invasion and beat it back in three days' time. It was a huge embarrassment for Kennedy. Some even called for his impeachment. Blight says that this incident led Castro to two conclusions. The first, it wasn't a matter of if the U.S. would attack again, but when. The second was that the attack would trigger a Soviet response, which would trigger an American response, which would obliterate Cuba. And so the only choice Cubans had was how valiantly they would fight to their death. And this is what he tells his people after the Bay of Pigs. He spends the next 18 months publicly making speech after speech after speech, bringing his people along, trying to explain to them that their options are two. One is to go down meaninglessly and stupidly and capitulate to the Yankees. The other one is to resist to the best of our ability and fight like men. And as the uh, Cubans say, to die facing the sun. That, that is our objective. And he, there's never been a great persuader quite as persuasive as the young Fidel Castro in that element. Kennedy concludes something totally different. He concludes from this that he has got to get Cuba off his agenda after the Bay of Pigs. This is ridiculous. I mean, the fact that they're talking about impeaching me because of this little pissant island. I mean, I, I, want, to do, I, I want a comprehensive test ban. I want U.S. Soviet, I want arms control. I want this and I want that. But I mean, these guys in the green outfits with the beards, I mean, this is ridiculous. I am not going to become obsessed with this thing. And yet, if he didn't appear to be getting ready to do even more, politically, it was a mess for him. So what Kennedy decided to do was to send a lot of military power into the Caribbean region thinking that this would be a good way to deter the Soviets from messing around in Cuba. 
But what he forgot was that there were actually Cubans in Cuba who had their own set of conclusions that they were drawing. And that conclusion was the attack is inevitable. So if you start this story 18 months earlier, how does it change our conception of what was going on by the time we get to October? Well, I think one way to think about it, Brian, is that the crisis became dangerous and almost went over the edge into nuclear war because of things that happened on the island of Cuba about which Americans knew almost nothing and about which the Soviets really weren't very curious. Khrushchev treats the Cubans like little children, almost as if he patted Fidel on the head and said, well, you know, you're kind of emotional. He referred to Fidel as a hot-blooded Latin. Um, he even, this is the man who liked to bang his shoe on the table. Well, yeah, I mean, consider the source, yeah. I mean, if hot-headed Nikita thinks that hot-headed Fidel is hot-headed... That's well, a statement. Uh, that, that's a statement, yeah. So he treats them like children, but Kennedy, on the other hand, treats, uh, frankly, the Cubans like lint. I mean, Cubans are nothing. He, they, they don't matter. This is all about a U.S.-Soviet confrontation. For Kennedy, then, therefore, none of this stuff with the missiles later has anything to do with the Bay of Pigs. That was then. In, in Kennedy's mind, that was then. Now we're dealing with an international crisis. Right, and it's a U.S.-Soviet confrontation. The big boys are meeting. Uh, Khrushchev believed what Fidel believed after the Bay of Pigs, which is that it's not a question of whether the Americans invade, it's when. And so immediately after the Bay of Pigs, Khrushchev has this idea of Castro's. He has no idea about missiles. Khrushchev says, would you like them? And Fidel says, missiles? Nuclear missiles? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'll take them. But won't that make us more of a target? Well, yes, but, you know, but if we get them in and we can get them operational, we, we can shock them with that. I'll come to Cuba in November, he tells Fidel. You and I will stand before the Marti Monument in front of millions of Cubans and the whole world and we'll say, ha, it's done. If they attack now, we will retaliate from Cuba. And that means they won't attack because they'll be deterred. It'll be beautiful. And the world will be more peaceful because of this. Now, that is a, a level of delusion that must have some kind of clinical name. The fact that, that, that he thought Kennedy would just accept this. I mean, that is so far off the edge of what was possible that it's almost difficult to describe. Yes. So the, the Cuban Missile Crisis is just sort of the, well, I did a calculation the other day. Actually, if, if it's an 18-month crisis, which it is, it is absolutely an 18-month crisis, 13 days is 2% of the crisis. I mean, someone, the number of people lately as the 50th anniversary of the crisis has come up have said, you know, they, the relevance of the Cuban Missile Crisis is that it sort of gives us a little insight of what to do about Iran and the standoff over their nuclear program because Iran is like a Cuban Missile Crisis in slow motion. But that's not right because the Cuban Missile Crisis was a crisis in slow motion. And for all but maybe 13 days plus a few, Khrushchev and Kennedy are like sleepwalkers. They got their eyes shut, their ears shut, their hands out in front of them. They're bumping around out there. They're talking about Berlin. They're talking about Laos. They're talking about nuclear arms control. And all of a sudden, the Cuban thing just erupts. They were totally disoriented. And the great thing about Kennedy and Khrushchev is they found a way to gather themselves together in just a few days to crawl out of this thing. It's a miraculous pull-a-rabbit-out-of-a-hat moment in late October 1962. But by golly, it should never have happened. It would never have happened if either of these two guys 
had been really listening to the Cubans. Because if Khrushchev is listening to Castro about beautiful death, that is the last guy you want to put in charge of nuclear weapons. I mean, and if Kennedy had paid attention to what the Cubans were saying, he would have noticed immediately that the Cubans are expecting an imminent attack. All he had to do was to order some of the hardware that he was putting in that area to back off and then send the message on. But he just, what Cubans said didn't matter to him. He couldn't, couldn't care less. Cuba, look, when his group was meeting during the missile crisis, the famous XCOM, the executive committee was meeting, they had many people in the room who had devoted themselves to the study of the Soviet Union. There was one person in the room, typically, who spoke a word of Spanish, and his name was Ed Martin, and he was the Assistant Secretary of State for Inter-American Affairs. And what Ed Martin did for a living was try to figure out a way to kill Fidel Castro. Not exactly the empathic sort of like get beneath the surface and interpret for us. No, his job was to work with the people who were associated with Operation Mongoose, the covert action wing of the Kennedy administration policy toward Cuba, and figure out a way to kill him. So uh, that, that tells you pretty much all of what you need to know about what kind of information was reaching the president with regard to Cuba. Jim Blight is a professor at the Basili School of International Affairs in Waterloo, Ontario. His new project is the Armageddon Letters, a multimedia look at the Cuban Missile Crisis. Our staff has really fallen in love with this project, and you can check it out at armageddonletters.com. And you can find a longer version of my interview with Jim on our site, backstoryradio.org. In the first part of our show, we explored the connections between the missile crisis and the 1961 Bay of Pigs invasion, the failed CIA attempt to overthrow the Castro regime. Now, we're going to turn to a story that's strikingly similar to the Bay of Pigs invasion. It, too, involves Cuban exiles, American support, and a plan to overthrow the government in Cuba. And like the Bay of Pigs, it ends badly for the Americans. But this story takes place over 100 years before in the mid-19th century. That was a moment when something called filibustering took hold of the American imagination. Filibustering, in this sense, had nothing to do with the Senate or controversial bills. Back in the day, filibusters were renegade adventurers who led expeditions to various Latin American countries. And the first country to be targeted by a filibuster expedition was, you guessed it, Cuba. The leader of this expedition to Cuba was a Venezuelan-born bureaucrat named Narciso Lopez. After a checkered career working for the Spanish government in Cuba and dabbling in anti-Spanish insurrection, he fled to the United States. In 1848, he began to gather volunteers for a do-it-yourself invasion of Cuba. His plan was to overthrow the Spanish administration and clear the way for eventual U.S. annexation. Backstory producer Jess Ingebretson tells the story. Lopez based his recruiting effort out of New York City, home to many Cuban exiles. He drew up an audacious plan for a two-pronged attack on Cuba's southern coast. By August, he was ready to move. The expedition will sail on Saturday. A steamer with a thousand men from New York or some point north. This is a letter from one of his supporters. And a steamer of a thousand tons with 12 or 1,500 more from New Orleans simultaneously. 
The U.S. government did not look kindly on this effort to force its foreign policy hand. Before the ship set sail, President Zachary Taylor ordered a naval blockade of Lopez's southern contingent and seized the ship in New York. The would-be invaders were back to square one. That's when Lopez changed tack. He realized that basing his force in the north had been a mistake. Southern politicians had been eyeing Cuba for decades. They wanted to annex Cuba, where slavery was legal, as a new slave state. That would strengthen the pro-slavery vote in Congress. In 1850, with sectional divisions deepening, Southern politicians wanted all the help they could get. So Lopez moved his headquarters to New Orleans. He asked one Jefferson Davis to lead his invasion, promising him $100,000 and a coffee plantation. Davis's wife was impressed by Lopez's glowing eyes and snowy hair, but the man himself said no. Robert E. Lee expressed some interest, then decided that the job would conflict with his obligations to the U.S. Army. But both men encouraged Lopez from the sidelines. In 1850, Lopez's second expedition took off. This time, his ships dodged Navy patrols, but one sailed off course and some soldiers deserted en route. Lopez reached Cuba with only 250 men, and his attack went nowhere. He'd expected the Cubans to rise up and join his battle against the Spanish, but that didn't happen. Instead, a Spanish warship chased the invaders all the way back to Key West, where the U.S. government seized Lopez's ship and arrested him. Southerners rallied to the filibuster's cause. Here's a reaction from a New Orleans newspaper. Our administration will disown all participation in it as an infraction of right, justice, and good faith. But the design appeals with almost irresistible power to the great heart of the nation and enlists the interests of the masses. Before long, the charges were dropped and Lopez was released. He returned to the South, where he was feted as a hero in New Orleans. Supporters urged him to try again. Then, in July 1851, U.S. papers began to report that the Cubans were rising up against the Spanish, just what Lopez had been waiting for. New Orleans was ablaze with talk of a Cuban revolution, so Lopez hurried to set sail. This time, his ship was so crowded with volunteers that a hundred men had to be kicked off before the filibusters could steam out of New Orleans Harbor. The plan of attack had called for a stealthy approach, but Lopez made a wrong turn and ended up in the middle of Havana Harbor. They tried to backtrack, but the Spanish had noticed. So when the filibusters landed west of the city, Spanish troops were hot on their trail. There was no Cuban uprising in sight. The U.S. papers had gotten that critical detail wrong. The filibusters spent a miserable week lost in the Cuban interior, ran out of food, and killed Lopez's horse to eat. On August 25th, the last of the survivors were captured. A few days later, Lopez was executed in Havana before a crowd of 20,000. The third and last of the Lopez expeditions to Cuba was over. Reaction in the U.S. was fierce. Newspapers published lurid accounts of Spanish abuses. The prisoners who were shot at Havana were afterwards mutilated, dragged by the heels, outraged in a manner our Indian savage would revolt at. Ears, fingers, pieces of skull brought away for exhibition and nailed or hung up in public places. In New Orleans, mobs smashed up Spanish coffee houses. Enraged Americans demanded that the U.S. end Spanish rule in Cuba. 
by force if necessary. And here's the amazing part. The U.S. government listened. Just a few years later, the new administration of Franklin Pierce approached one of Lopez's supporters with a plan for one last invasion. By early 1854, that expedition was all set to go. Thousands of men recruited a small arsenal at the ready. And then, all of a sudden, a pro-slavery military adventure became too hot for the administration to handle. That's because, in March of that year, the Kansas-Nebraska Act passed. Kansas, which had been off-limits to slavery, was suddenly opened up to a vote on the question. Thousands of Americans poured into the state, hoping to tip the scales one way or the other. The fight over slavery was no longer about a little island in the Caribbean. It was happening smack in the middle of the United States. The Pierce administration abandoned the filibuster plan. Cuba moved to the back burner. The filibusters continued organizing on their own, but even they saw which way the wind was blowing. In 1855, they dropped the Cuba plan altogether. And a few short years later, some of the conspirators found a new outlet for their pro-slavery energies. They joined the Confederate Army. Jess Engelbretson is a former Backstory producer. So what's really striking to me about that story is the fact that so many Americans are on board with these apparently crazy expeditions to Cuba. I mean, by the 1850s, even the U.S. government endorses the idea, even though it's illegal by U.S. and international law. Now, it's easy today to think that Lopez and all the people who paid any attention to him were kind of off balance. But what we need to realize is he was really tapping into some deep vein of American thinking. And whenever we have a deep vein, it goes back to the early days, Peter. So can you dig a little deeper and tell us where this Cuba obsession comes from? Well, it does go back to the beginning, Ed, and it goes into the mind of my man, Thomas Jefferson. Not just Jefferson, but all Americans had an obsession with Cuba. Hmm. Let me give you this quote from Jefferson in a famous letter he writes to James Madison in 1809. And Cuba is his central concern in this letter. I would immediately erect a column on the southernmost limit of Cuba and inscribe on it a ne plus ultra, go no further. As to us in that direction, we should then have only to include the North in our Confederacy. Okay, here's, I hope I haven't stumped you guys. What would the North be? <laughs> Maine. It's another, another hard C, yeah, yeah, okay? Yeah, Canada. Yeah, yeah, okay, Canada, which would be, of course, in the First War. Yeah, listen to our show on the War of 1812. You see how that one turned out. And we should have such an empire for liberty as she has never surveyed since the creation. And I am persuaded no constitution was ever before so well calculated as ours for extensive empire and self-government. Peter. Wow. Forgive me. We're going to create an empire for liberty by invading Cuba and Canada? Help me out here. No, 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 no. Think continentally, as the Mm. American revolutionaries did, because they called their Congress, the Continental Congress, the Army, the Continental Army. And it's not because those 13 little colonies constitute a whole continent, but the continent was their future. It Mm. was their opportunity. And it was also their vulnerability. And I want you to put Cuba on your mental map of the continent. And why do we need Cuba? We need Cuba because of the threat 
that a foreign power, notably the British, because the Spanish don't constitute a threat to anybody at this period, that the British represent to the United States. Imagine that we're encircled, the Americans are encircled by the great counter-revolutionary power, Britain, in control of Cuba, in control of Canada, and they can squeeze, they can put the screws on, they can foment servile insurrection, they can unleash their Indian allies in the frontiers. It would be the second coming of the American Revolution, but this time the Americans might lose. It would be almost as bad as having Fidel Castro there, Well, something like that, yes. What you have to keep in mind is the United States is a weak power. The expansion of the Union is a kind of preemptive move to eliminate future threats. That's the great concern. we think in terms of expansion now that there's something about this young republic uh, with its all its lusty young manhood needing to s- elbow room. Strapping. Yeah, strapping, strapping all that stuff. Republic. But it's the weakness of the United States that makes it absolutely essential to eliminate possible causes of war and sources of danger. And I'll tell you the real problem, Ed and Brian, about the early American Republic is you can't count on the loyalties of Americans themselves. They would turn if commercial opportunity made it advantageous. And that's uh, true along all the borders. Many Americans move to Canada and become late loyalists in the run-up to the War of 1812. Many uh, Americans in the Southwest form alliances with the Spanish. You've got a volatile situation in this entire region. And Cuba stands out. This is where our defenses must be erected because there we command the Caribbean and nobody can hurt us, but we also protect the North American continent at the same time. Today on the show, we're looking at Cuba's surprising influence on U.S. history. And we're going to turn now to an instance in which a relatively small group of Cubans had a rather large effect on U.S. immigration policy. Between April and October of 1980, 125,000 Cubans emigrated across the Florida Straits and landed in South Florida in what has become known as the Mariel Boatlift. Cuba was going through a period of economic turmoil. Many Cubans wanted to leave the island, but had been prevented by the Castro regime's strict immigration laws. And so, a handful of Cubans took matters into their own hands. They essentially stormed the Peruvian embassy, and it was a major moment of embarrassment to Fidel Castro's regime, since it certainly looked like um, the regime wasn't paying attention to its people. This is Julio Capo, Jr. He's an historian at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. After the storming of the embassy and a number of incidents at other embassies, Castro basically threw his hands up and said, fine, you want to leave? You can leave. Just find your own ride. So thousands of Cubans began hiring boats to ferry them to Key West and Miami. Between midnight and noon today, 23 boats filled with over 800 Cubans reached Key West, Florida. U.S. Marines are now on duty at Key West to keep order among the restless refugees waiting resettlement in the United States. They were called Marielitos. And at first, President Jimmy Carter welcomed them with open arms. The U.S. was happy to help people fleeing communism. But after the refugees arrived, it became clear that Castro had used the boat lift to clear out some of his prisons. He wanted to make Cuban criminals into America's problem. Now, if you remember the movie Scarface, made in the early 80s, 
some of this may sound familiar. At the beginning of the film, Tony Montana has just come over from Cuba on the boat lift. In an early scene, immigration officials are peppering him with questions, trying to figure out what the deal is. They ask him, do you know anybody here? Yeah. Any family in the States, Tony? Any cousins, brother-in-law, anybody? Everybody stayed. Are you a criminal? You ever been in jail, Tony? Me? Jail? No way. Are you crazy? Been in a mental hospital? Oh, yeah. And the boat coming over. And then the immigration officials ask Montana another question, something that seems, well, a little out of left field. What about homosexuality, Tony? You like men, huh? You like to dress up like a woman? What's wrong with this guy? Am I kidding me or what? Just answer the questions, Tony. Okay. No. Okay? No. So what complicates this matter slightly further, again, Julio Capo Jr., is that um, the INS, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, did have an official policy from 1917 all the way to 1990 of barring homosexual aliens from entering the country. A small contingent of the Marielitos, about a thousand by some estimates, were homosexuals. Some came to the U.S. to escape a homophobic environment in Cuba. Others were part of Castro's emptying out of the prisons. Through the 70s, homosexuality was considered a crime in Cuba and, according to Capo, by 1980, many were still being prosecuted for social crimes. They were considered counter-revolutionary. And that's because uh, homosexuality in Cuba is often interpreted as a, as a sort of self-indulgent um, act, one that is um, really the, the product of, of urban bourgeois, um, and that in some ways it really reflects uh, capitalist values. And at this moment in 1980 where the United States finds itself really torn about what to do. Which is the greater evil, communism or gay people? Do we send these refugees back to an oppressive dictator, or do we allow homosexuals to cross our borders? Laws barring homosexuals from entering the U.S. had been on the books since 1917. Until 1973, homosexuality was still considered a mental disorder by the American Psychological Association, providing a so-called scientific basis for excluding gays. But the United States decided that communism was an even bigger threat. They couldn't send the Marielitos back to Cuba. They needed to find a way to bend the rules. Immigration officials came up with a plan, something that might actually sound a little familiar today. They thought, we do have to enforce this law, but we only have to enforce it if there is irrefutable proof that someone is a homosexual. What Uncle Sam doesn't know won't hurt him. So what they end up doing is, while not changing the law specifically, they implement this proto-don't-ask-don't-tell policy that really does prohibit, although this is certainly implemented quite differently depending on um, who's on the other end of the border, but what it really does for a decade is disallow uh, people on on the borders to ask questions specifically um, as to whether one is a homosexual or not, and kind of clues. So something, you know, seeing a a gay pride button or something could no longer warrant um, further investigation. Um, and this is, it's certainly implemented in different ways depending on where one is, but it's, it's not um, the kind of aggressive policy that had um, dominated um, policy prior. The new policy stated that, quote, an unsolicited, unambiguous, oral or written admission of homosexuality, end quote, was required to deny admission to the United States. As far as anyone can tell, no homosexual marialitos were sent back to Cuba. <laughs> 
In the end, the homosexual Mary Litos left a permanent mark on U.S. immigration policy. In 1990, a gay Mary Lito named Toboso Alfonso was denied asylum because of a criminal act here in the U.S. However, his testimony about his time in Cuba, being persecuted by Cuban police because of his sexual orientation, led authorities to stop deportation proceedings. They said he'd be at risk if he were sent back. This case became a precedent. And today, refugees and immigrants generally cannot be excluded from the U.S. based on their sexual orientation. Special thanks to Julio Capo Jr. for helping us tell that story. We'll have a link to his writing on the Mariel Boatlift at our website, BackstoryRadio.org. We've seen that we can understand the 13-day drama of the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis better if we open the curtains a little bit earlier. The same is true of another defining episode in U.S.-Cuba relations, the Spanish-American War. This was the four-month conflict that secured Cuba's independence from Spain, or so the story goes. In reality, the war for Cuba's independence had been going on for three and a half years when the United States stepped in, in 1898. And despite our government's claims that it was acting on behalf of the Cuban people, invading U.S. troops actually prevented Cuban fighters from consummating their revolution. Americans occupied the island for four years after Spain's defeat. And they only left after they thought they had ensured that Cuba would never be a truly sovereign nation. Most Americans know very little about this longer story One of the few things Americans do remember about the Spanish-American War is the role of the yellow press. As the story goes, William Randolph Hearst played up Spanish atrocities as a way to sell his newspapers. But is that really the reason we went to war? Brian sat down with historian Kristen Hoganson, who argues that, well, yes, the yellow press helped push us to war, but there was something bigger going on in the press, the public, and Congress— It all comes together, she says, with gender politics. There was a tendency to depict Cuba as a female figure. Um, So if you look at political cartoons from this time period, uh, time and time again in the United States, they depict Cuba as a woman. And so the, the implication is if the island as a whole is like a suffering woman, then it's all the more imperative that the United States intervene to end that kind of assault on female honor. And I'm wondering if uh, you could uh, talk about a specific cartoon. Right. So I have this cartoon, and it is from the New York World, but it was republished in the Review of Reviews in April um, 1898 as the war issue was being debated in the United States Congress. The caption reads, Peace, but quit that. And what the cartoon (laughs) shows is Uncle Sam who is standing in a portal of a battleship with quite a large cannon that is pointing out from virtually between his legs. And and the rather phallic-looking cannon is pointing directly at a Spanish soldier who's dressed rather like a matador, not so much in military (laughs) uniform. And in his right hand, he has a sword, which is dripping blood. And lying prostrate at his feet is a woman who has been terribly brutalized. She is barefoot, um, haggard, 
with a torn dress that reveals the lower parts of her, her legs. They're exposed. And she's clutching a starving or an emaciated little child uh, to her breast. And um, the clear implication is it is imperative that the United States intervene to stop such assaults on womanhood. And how would people come across these? What would they make of them? And how did this uh, kind of gendering of the war contribute uh, to war fever in the first place and the prosecution of the war? Well, there was widespread public support for Cuba Libre. There were all kinds of mass meetings, um, theatrical productions, popular fiction, and newspaper accounts that were very favorable to Cuban independence. The underlying logic was just as a manly man would not stand pat while watching a woman or child be brutalized, a manly nation needed to act if there were atrocities being committed against women and children, especially so close to the coast of the United States. What about those hard-headed guys, those politicians in Congress? Is this what got them animated as well? Did this gendered interpretation play an important part in the story of the debates leading up to the war itself? It's so funny that you call them hard-headed guys because I see them <laughs> as very emotional in the Cuban uh, debate. So I think the precipitating event was the sinking of the Maine. President McKinley sent the Maine to Havana following a series of riots in the city, and it mysteriously exploded on the night of February 15 with the loss of 266 American lives. So then after the Maine, there are a lot of debates about what should the United States do now. And in these discussions on the floor of Congress, there are two words that surface over and over again. And the first is honor. So so let me quote from from two of these statements that I, I happen to have. One was Representative William Arnold, who was a Republican of Pennsylvania. And he said, and I quote, Our honor is at stake and our flag insulted. If I insult any gentleman in this house, should there be arbitration to decide and inform that gentleman whether or not he has been insulted? And his colleague, um, or actually Senator, uh, George Perkins, who's Republican from uh, California, said, Men do not arbitrate questions of honor, neither do nations. And then in addition to talking about honor repeatedly and insisting that national honor was on the line, they kept invoking ideas about manhood. If we declare war, that would be an assertion of American manhood. Um, I have another quotation from Representative uh, James R. Mann, who is Republican from Illinois. Good name. <laughs> that, that's uh, so true. We fight because it has become necessary to fight if we would uphold our manhood, unquote. <laughs> You've painted with a broad brush what's happening in the United States. Could you put that in chronological perspective? Why this concern about gender factors? There were a lot of concerns about manhood in this time period. They were often spoken of in terms of anxieties about over-civilization, which implied that the United States had become a softer country, that it was losing the hard male virtues that had been carved out in the course of westward expansion. Um, There's a lot of concern about what it meant 
for American men to be working increasingly in white-collar jobs and larger bureaucratized corporations, um, not doing as much manual labor for middle-class and wealthier men. Added to this were concerns about um, the passing of the Civil War generation. And there are a number of reunions in this time period that brought the blue and gray together even though they had fought for very different things um, in the 1860s. But the conclusion was drawn is that what really mattered by the 1890s was that these men had shown manhood on the field of battle, that fighting itself was the thing that mattered, not the reasons for which one would fight. So there was a certain amount of projection onto the Cuban cause. And in the theatrical and romantic depictions of what was happening in Cuba. I think to a large extent it was a way of working through some of the gender anxieties that were so salient in the United States in this time period. Well, Kristen, I want to thank you for joining us today. Well, Brian, it was a real pleasure talking to you. Kristen Hoganson is a historian at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, We've been spending the hour today examining the moments in American history when Cuba has seemed to suddenly burst onto the scene. There were the filibuster raids of the 1850s, the Spanish-American War in 1898, the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, and the Marielle Boatlift in 1980. But there's another episode in the early 1960s that belongs on this list, Operation Pedro Pan. Robert Armengol, a former producer on Backstory, grew up in South Florida and has lived in Cuba. Here's his story about Operation Pedro Pan and what that episode in American history tells us about the place of children in the national psyche. My cross-country coach back in high school was a guy named Carlos Barking, but we all just called him Bark. His trademark was barking orders at us. Okay, boys, stay sitting down, close all the windows, please. Let's do it. That's Bark. He's loading a bunch of football players on a bus for a game in Fort Lauderdale. Bark is actually the school's athletic director, but... Don't have enough drivers today, so i got to drive one of the buses. Bark has worked at Belen Jesuit Prep in Miami for the better part of four decades. And he's grown the sports program from next to nothing to something of a little powerhouse. He was a wrestling champ in high school, and when he coached us, well, let's just say his running drills introduced us day in and day out to new worlds of pain. So I was surprised the other day to hear him say this about coming to the States for the first time. Oh, God, uh, that was hard. Uh, it took me about three months when I cried every night, especially when I thought I was not going to see them again. He's talking about his parents. Because a whole new life. Uh, here is a little farm boy coming to a big city, big language barrier. Bark was a child of Operation Pedro Pan. His mother and father sent him with his younger brother to the United States from a tiny town in central Cuba in 1962. Bark was 12. Like many Cubans, Bark's parents had celebrated when triumphant rebel soldiers made their way across the island a few years earlier. They actually marched through town. I remember seeing them with the long beers and stuff like that. Everybody came out to greet him and say, we're going up towards Havana. It was a moment of joy, I think, for many Cubans who had wanted change in Cuba. This is political scientist Maria de Los Angeles Torres. 
She has researched Operation Pedro Pan extensively and was herself a Pedro Pan child. She was just six when the revolution came to power. I remember the excitement about the change becoming, at some point, more of a worry. I think in my family, more than the lack of free elections was the fact that the Castro government started using firing squads as a way of quashing dissent, where a lot of young men were picked up and some of them were brought to trial, summary trials. One was a very close friend of my parents. He had just turned 17. Rumors were spreading, they were false, it turns out, that Fidel was going to take exclusive rights over children from their parents and maybe ship kids off to Russia for indoctrination. At the same time, there was word on the street about a special program for children, supported by the church, that could provide U.S. visa waivers for kids, offset their travel costs, even find scholarships for them to attend American boarding schools. The program was actually the offshoot of a clandestine CIA operation. One day, Bark was on horseback riding through cane fields near the sugar mill where his father worked when... My brother came riding a bicycle with a telegram in his hands, and he was waving, he was happy, he said, the telegram is here, the telegram is here. Their travel permits had come through. We saw that as a great adventure, said, of course, we'd love to go. And that's how it all started. Over two years, more than 14,000 miners would board flights out of Cuba in the care of the Catholic Church, but largely on Uncle Sam's tab. A Miami Herald reporter covering the story called it Operation Pedro Pan, a Cuban version of the Peter Pan story, where children get whisked away, not to Never Never Land, but to America. But in October 1962, everything changed. Good evening, my fellow citizens. This government, as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. With the Cuban Missile Crisis, all flights from Cuba ended, along with hope for many refugee kids that they would see their parents anytime soon. Pedro Pan had lost its wings, but the name stuck. In Cuba, though, people came to call it Peter Pan to emphasize its U.S. origins and Fidel Castro's own narrative, that these children were stolen from the revolution. Remember those rumors about Castro stealing children? Well, it seems they were broadcast from a pirate radio station in the Caribbean, run by American intelligence agents. And Torres' research uncovered proof that the Kennedy administration secretly funded the production of a propaganda film, in Spanish and English, that depicted Cuban children adjusting to life in a refugee camp, while playing up fears about the communist brainwashing that kids were said to be escaping. It's like the story about the dog who swam from Havana to Key West just to be able to bark a little. Sure, it's lonesome at first, but you'll make friends. Children always do. The truth is, for many Pedro Pan children, Fleeing Castro's Cuba came with serious hardships and sometimes lasting trauma. Torres tells one story of a close friend who, along with his four brothers, ended up in an orphanage where abuse was common. In that orphanage, the older boys were oftentimes put in showers where there was a lot of, uh, of rapes and the priest would be outside watching. 
uh, for the younger ones, if they, for whatever reason, didn't eat the food, the nuns would punish them. If they started wetting their beds, these were six-year-old kids, uh, the nun would wake them up to beat them up. The story told among Cuban exiles is that Pedro Pan kids thrived and were immensely successful. Like Bark, he doesn't have any harrowing tales to tell. It wasn't easy. He bounced from camp to camp in Miami. But along the way, he met strong mentors, including Monsignor Brian Walsh, who ran Pedro Pan for the church in South Florida. Another was a Jesuit priest who helped Bark get his first job at Belen. Still, he didn't see his mom and dad for almost five years. When his father arrived in Miami in 1967, he had cancer. He died within the year. So I had to ask Bark, do you feel your childhood was stolen from you? No, at all. I thank my parents for making the tough decision that they make. I know that it was much harder on them than it was on us. I know my parents suffer a lot, uh, but I thank them for it because had it not been for this, I would not have done what I'm doing today. I love what I do, and I think most of the children that came feel the same. My own family is Cuban. My parents left in the early 60s with their parents and siblings. I don't have any close relatives who were Pedro Pan, but I guess the operation has touched me, too, through Coach Bark and other teachers and friends. The funny thing is, I still don't know exactly what to make of it. What I do know is that if we compare Pedro Pan with the current situation on the southern border, the contrast at first glance is striking. Today, parents already in the States want to bring their kids and raise them here in stable homes, but they face huge legal hurdles. Children in grave and immediate physical danger want asylum, but have trouble making their case because their plight isn't, quote, political. In the same country that rounded up kids to save them from communism, talks about sending home children who risked everything to make it here. But these two migrations do have a couple of things in common. In both cases, fear seems to be driving public policy. And in both cases, grown-ups' ideas of good and bad seem to trump the most commonplace wish of children everywhere to be with their family. Robert Armengol is a former Backstory producer. Today's episode of Backstory was produced by Tony Field, Nell Beschenstein, Jess Angabretson, Eric Menel, and Allison Quantz. Jamal Milner is our technical director. Special thanks this week to Luis Perez. Major support is provided by the Shia Khan Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional funding is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment, and by History Channel, history made every day. Brian Ballow is professor of history at the University of Virginia. Peter Onuf is professor of history emeritus at UVA and senior research fellow at Monticello. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus at the University of Richmond. Backstory was created by Andrew Windham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. 
Backstory is distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange.